0: Normally I wouldn't do that, but this table looks a little wet, so I'm not going to put my Bible there. Um, Let's take a moment to pause and pray. God, thank you for um, for this opportunity now in our week to to, uh, be in community and to receive um, from you uh, revelation, what you have for us, both uh, collectively but also personally, individually. Uh, God, we... We thank you for uh, this word. It, it, it seems a little strange at first glance, God, and so we ask um, your spirit to both bring life to this word for us, but also to open our hearts to receive from you what you have. Um, we thank you that the word has the power to do that, to shape us to be people of great hope in this world that needs it, God. Thank you for this time, Lord. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, well, at first blush, uh, this passage, I don't know if you heard it, it just is a little odd. Um, it's like this smattering of thoughts and metaphors, and it's kind of like I was telling Dirk as I was looking over with him before the service that Paul's coming to the end of Romans, just kind of throws some things out that didn't quite feel elsewhere, just hoping it kind of sticks. It's like a stream of consciousness. Does anybody else kind of get that sense? Uh, like you have debt and you have love and end times and light and darkness and fleshly desires and it just feels a little bit weird. <clears throat> and so because I had to figure out I was going to preach this, um, I was asking the Lord this week about, you know, what, what's in this for us? Like what do you want us to know? What's the theme? What does Bethany Northeast need to know this particular week? and this phrase popped into my head it's for freedom that you've been set free and i had actually spoken that word over a friend here in a week uh, that last weekend and so uh, that was kind of in me and it was stirring in me and it was just reverberating so this is like tuesday or wednesday of this week and sitting with this word and so i thought well let's see what that's about i know where that is it's galatians 5 and here's what paul says there galatians 5 actually that's the first verse it's for freedom You've been set free. But then in 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 verse 13, and you don't need to turn there. uh, I'll read it for you. This is what Paul says. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says in verse 16, so walk by the Spirit. This is that passage around the fruit of the Spirit. And do not desire, uh, gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, the act of the flesh are obvious. There's sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, blah, blah, blah. Um, actually, I just said that about the Bible, but it's okay. And then he says, the spirit of love, a spirit of, through the spirits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so I read that. I don't know if you did, but I had a moment. I was like, whoa. It was very clear to me, suddenly, <clears throat> what God wants to say to us. Because these two passages, Romans 13 and, and Galatians 5, are really like mirror images of each other. There's themes that run across both. And what I believe Paul's trying to articulate, or the Spirit's trying to articulate to us, which, which isn't obvious at first glance in Romans 13, is, is freedom. Uh, the practical significance of freedom in Christ. Not only how we experience it, which we're going to get at, into today, but also the vital importance of freedom to the gospel. That the gospel itself is all about Freedom. And I've said this before, but on the first day of his ministry on earth, Jesus, he goes into the synagogue in Nazareth. Um, He reads the weekly lesson, which would be like a lectionary, the lectionary reading for that day, um, the public reading. And that's from Isaiah 61. If you remember from Advent this year, we we talked about this passage. He gets up in front of everyone. It's like his uh, inaugural sermon, his State of the Union. Here, here's what he says. This is what Isaiah 61 says, actually. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's, he's anointed me, to proclaim good news to the poor, and he sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives. See, Jesus is saying in his first sermon, I'm about freedom. I'm not just, he doesn't get up there and say, I'm just, I, I, I'm just here to help you. I'm just here to be your guide, your spiritual guide, a guru. I'm not, just here to, so you obey better. I'm here to inspire you, motivate you, give you an example of how to live a good life. I mean, he does say that in some other places, in other ways, and that's all good. But in his first sermon, he begins by proclaiming freedom. I'm about freedom. I'm here to cause freedom. I'm here to bring your freedom. I've come to set you free. That's what Jesus is about. And um, one of the reasons this is so important for our lives today, just getting very practical, is that freedom, you you know this, most of you, is one of the greatest values of the the modern Western world. This is the the stories that stir us most are about freedom. Uh, Braveheart, for example, stirs me the most. No, but anyway, Mel Gibson... Uh, and he's had some bad years but this was a great moment for him he's uh, in that movie you know William Wallace who happens to be one of my ancestors by the way so there you go 13th century um, you know guy from Scotland and he's asked to recant uh, and in his you know he's being executed and tortured you remember this scene in the movie if you've seen it and he's been his executioners his, his, his tormentors are saying you need to cry mercy and what does William Wallace do do you remember this Freedom, this sort of blood-curdling cry that could just cut through the, the crowd like a knife. That's why after the catastrophes of World War I and World War II in 1948, the United Nations uh, adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which states in its first line, first article, all human beings, not some, all are born free and equal in dignity and rights. Sort of a way of recalibrating society after these, uh, to this basic and fundamental idea that we are created to experience freedom. And, and, and that slavery and bondage and genocide and and war and violence and persecution and repression, none of those, all of those are aberrations. None of those belong to the world that God created. So Paul's just showing us thousands of years before that the very essential nature and, as, and, the, and the need for freedom to our createdness and to the gospel, how we can be agents of freedom today in this world that just needs it. We, I mean... You don't have to read much news to know the world needs the message of freedom. So Paul shows us the, the centrality of it, the necessity of it, um, by highlighting very practical ways we can, we can live into our freedom. So we're going to look at a few of those. In freedom, it's for freedom we've been set free. And we're going to look at uh, three ways from Romans 13 that we can experience how the gospel frees us, how we can experience our freedom. So first, the freedom to love, verses 8 and 10, or 8 to 10. The freedom to live for the day verses 11 and 12, and then the freedom to surrender our whole lives to Christ, verses 13 and 14. Look at those, and then we'll respond by coming to the Lord's table, okay? So first, the freedom to love. Here's verse 8. This is from a different translation than we read. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt of loving one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. And see, what Paul's saying here isn't really really surprising, actually, because he's already said it. In the context of the wider letter to Rome, that love is the bedrock of the Christian life as well as what really matters when it comes to experiencing faith. So Romans 8, 38 and 39, that famous passage, Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, present nor future, any powers or height or depth, anything in creation can separate us from the love of God that's ours in Christ Jesus, nothing. And then later in Romans 12, he says, love must be sincere. Hate what's evil, cling to what's good, be devoted to one another in love. So followers of Christ, Paul's saying all throughout Romans and here in Romans 13, are invited into and immersed in a world of love. What's more, um, when Paul says the whole law is summed up in love, whoever loves others has fulfilled the law, he's really adding nothing new to the equation. Like, because you know, he's echoing Jesus. I mean, Jesus, when he's asked what the greatest commandment is, remember this? What does he say? He quotes Leviticus, Leviticus, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second, just in case you wanted to know, love your neighbors yourself. Those two are the greatest commandments. So you might say that, that loving God, loving others, is just the root, the very root of freedom. We're freed to love. That's kind of the point here. And that sounds great, doesn't it? Awesome. Love it. It's the month of love, in February. Happy early Valentine's Day. Um, we have a problem, though, living into it. Uh, just not just even as Christ followers, but as just people in the world. And, and, and here's why. Verse 8, owe no one anything except love, the debt of love. For the one who loves, another has fulfilled the law. And then continues, for the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet. And any other command is summed up in this saying, love your neighbor as yourself. See, when we read those things, those are sort of applications on this commandment. We think of them sort of like... Um, the rich young ruler, remember this guy from the Gospels? He came to Jesus asking this question. What do I have to do to be saved? In other words, how can I experience more of God in my life? How can I experience God's power? How can I be more free? Just to put it in the terms of our conversation today. And then Jesus rattles off these commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. Do these things, Jesus says, you'll experience more of God. And so the man says to Jesus, well, I've kept, I've done these things since I was a young boy. I was raised in the church. I went to Sunday school. I know all the stories. And I'm not experiencing freedom, Jesus. That's why I'm here. I need more. I want more of God. (laughs) And so Jesus says this weird thing. Well, then give it all away. You're rich. I see that. Give everything you have away to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. In other words, you're going to be free if you just lighten your life up a little bit. And of course, that man goes away sad. He's really discouraged because it says he had many possessions. In fact, the Greek literal, literally says the possessions had him. He was possessed. He was heavy. He was living a burdened and weary life. He was not free, and he could not see beyond a life without those things in his life. And so um, we make the mistake this man made when we come to Jesus, and Paul's correcting it. We think about these things, these commands, don't murder, don't steal, don't uh, commit adultery, don't covent, all those things as directives, as a way to keep God's love vertically. Um, if we do these things and don't do other things, then if we're moral, if we're good, if we're upstanding people, you know, principled, scrupulous, go to church on Sunday, small group Monday, maybe listen to some Christian radio in the car all throughout the week, God will accept us, we'll be more worthy of God's love, Period. And Paul interestingly he says that following he following Jesus he wraps this language around the commandments interesting language saying that the one who loves has fulfilled the law, and then he goes on, and he illustrates those laws, and he says this this very fascinating thing that we need to look at that the law is then summed up completed by this one word love your neighbor as yourself he says that love your neighbor is the fulfillment of the law which means this love as he's talking about it and in the, in the New Testament talks about it is not an action it's not a feeling. It's not even an intention. We think of it that way. It is the source of action. It's a condition out of which actions emerge. That's what love is. It's uh, fidelity, generosity, justice, peace. Love gives rise to those things. Like it, it gives rise to all those things. But love is not those things. Um, a rich young ruler is being told that you, you cannot earn, you cannot do love. You can't achieve love by doing love. You can't do good. You, you can't lose love either by not doing love. (laughs) Love arises out of something purely internal, purely independent of what you do or don't do. It's a condition of the embodied life, of the life of God within you. That's what he's saying. And because it's a condition of the embodied life of God within you being expressed through you, such love, as it's expressed, you can't turn it on and off like a faucet. It just doesn't work that way. For this person or that person, this situation or that situation, Paul got that. Um, the fallacy of those who would say, I just can't love that person. They're too hard to love. They owe me something. They hurt me. I can't love that person. I just can't do it. Um, he knew that there's a fallacy in that because you're working from the wrong direction at the wrong level. The, that the goal in Christ is not to try to love this or that difficult person or to try and be more loving in that difficult situation, but, and try, but to try and be the kind of person who would or could love despite the conditions, despite the circumstances. Here's what Paul's saying, and what Jesus said prior to him. Our aim under love is not to be more loving, uh, but to be possessed by love, uh, by the love of God, to be, to, by God's belovedness in us. Uh, the rich young ruler was possessed by his possessions, and he's saying, Jesus is saying, no, 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 give it all away, and be possessed by my love. This is precisely why it's so vital that Jesus had his the God God's love declared over him, Son of God, at his baptism before he did anything, because love is not a faucet you turn on and off. It's something. It's something you. Uh, it's not something you choose to do or not do. It's who you are. It's who, who you choose to be. Um, and Jesus had to have that integrated into his identity as the Savior. I mean, that's crazy. If you think if he did, you might. <laughs> and so uh, when you get, and when you get that of realizing that you're loved without condition, you will be freed to love. That's what Paul's saying. We love because God first loved us. That's what Scripture tells us. Now think about that. We love because God first loved us. What produces love? Just put it in terms of a relationship, because Paul is talking about relationships, marriage and friendships and uh, neighbors. Is—is is, Do you love if you're told to love? Like if I tell you, you know, go love those people that aren't here. Just love them. Or um, if you go into a significant relationship with one of your children, your spouse, and you say, love me, love me. Has that ever worked? Uh, It works in my house, great. But in your house, I'm just going to say no. It probably hasn't worked. I was being sarcastic. Um, You know because you're all in relationships of one kind or another that in your relationships, if there's someone you know that's feeling unloved or you're feeling unloved, uh, you don't say love me. You don't say go love them. You say what? I love you. You express it. I love you is what generates love. And that's why God declares love over Jesus. That's why God and through Paul wants you to know his love. Love begets love, love generates love. Life after recognizing you're loved doesn't eliminate the law, <laughs> good works, it produces them. You respond to them. When you know your love, the outcome is the fruit of love. It's loving action. It's all these things Paul talks about. And when you realize that, you, you man, you come into a new relationship with Christ that you've never had before. Um, you're free to love. Okay? And here's one more thing, real quick, before we go to the second point. Because I, I, don't, want to misunder- I don't want you to misunderstand what Paul says here. Uh, in verse 10, he says, Love, so you're free to love, and then he says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. And we can misread that. Oh, that means I have to be perfect in my expression of love, right? And, uh, like, I'm, <laughs> wow, that's too much. And, uh, you know, Jesus expressed flawless love. I've got to receive his love flawlessly, and just kind of, that just feels like too much. I mean, anybody? And that's not what Paul says. He's saying that the dynamic of love is always other centered, and it does no wrong to the neighbor. That's the dynamic of love. But it doesn't apply perfection in love. And instead, it says, the lo- this, is, this is so core, the love we experience in Christ is perfect. We love because He first loved us. It's perfect. And though the, the love we distribute is always imperfect, because we're imperfect. We're all flawed. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That's what Paul says. We're broken. And thus, our horizontal distribution of love is never going to be perfect. But here's the, here's the cool thing. Uh, He's saying when, when you experience those moments of imperfection, when you don't love the way you're hoping you could love, you're not loving perfectly, you're loving imperfectly, you're free because you've received God's love to throw yourself back on the unwavering, unconditional, amazing love of God which will recalibrate you for even a moment to, to enliven you just for maybe a moment to then try it again, to love, to, you'll be free to love. You won't be bound up in sort of your inadequacy and your failures. You'll just be free because you know you're loved. That's the, so that's the invitation is to hear that over your heart today. Christ saying to you, I love you. You're free to love. Okay, that's the first thing. God's love births love in us, which causes love to bleed through us. We're freed by love to love, okay? So that's the first thing. Here's the second. Um, freedom to live for the day. So we're free to love, and we have this freedom to live for the day. Um, and Paul says this, do this. Understanding the present time, the hour has already come for us to wake up from your slumber because your salvation, our salvation is near now than we first believed. So in these verses, again, kind of a smattering of things. It's like, I get this image because I'm a parent of Paul walking into one of his, he's like a parent walking into his kids' rooms, if you've ever done this, banging a drum. (laughs) Wake up! It's time to get up! I don't know if you guys flip the lights on and do all those things, uh, saying, hey, we're going to go to the mountains today. Get up. It's snowing outside. It's going to be amazing. We're on an adventure. So he's trying to get them to wake up from their sleep, uh, which is why I loved the J.B. Phillips translation. It's time to wake up to reality. Uh, or, or as another translation puts it, live for the day. Live for the day. So there's a sense of urgency and excitement. It's time to prepare for something and get ready and to wake up for it, which is different than our modern mantra of live for today. Do you hear that? It's live for the day, not live for today. So what does that mean, real quick, to live for today? Um, It means, I think, like seize the day. Since I quoted an old movie, Dead Poets Society, remember that one? Carpe diem. Remember that? And there's this poem in there that Robin Williams quotes over those boys. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Old time is still flying. And this same flower that smiles today, because the same flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. Carpe diem, seize the day. See, I think that means uh, make the most of this opportunity, this one. Live for now because you never know what tomorrow is going to, what's going to bring tomorrow. You might die. You might die. Live for every moment as if it's your last. And that sentiment, sentiment, it far predates Robin Williams. It's this old, old idea that suggests we live in the light of an unforeseen, unpredictable future. That the only certainty in life is there is no certainty. And so, because we don't know, we don't know the future. Make every moment count. Suck the marrow out of life because there's no life really. Be we can't be sure there's life beyond life, which in very practical terms means this: If you want to eat, eat. If you want to drink, drink. If you want to spend, just spend. Doesn't matter. Don't worry about debt. If you want sex, sex. Do you, as they say on Instagram, live your best life. You know, no regrets, just live for the moment. And here's the deal. That sentiment, carpe diem, is both congruent with as well as very dissonant from Christ and the gospel that we've been invited into. It's congruent because both believe that your understanding of the future will dictate your values and decisions in the present. That's just practical wisdom. That how we see the present and interpret our future will will hugely impact your decisions and your choices. It's going to, okay? That's just practical wisdom. But it's dissonant because, uh, as Paul describes it, it's not an uncertain future that we're being invited into. It's uh, far from it. Paul believed that there is an end in the future and a very clear and concrete historical event is going to happen that's endowed with hope. It's filled with hope. Verse 11 again. Salvation is nearer now than we first believed. And salvation, as one author writes about it, is this comprehensive term throughout Scripture that embraces both the past and the present because of the future. There's a, there's a concrete future, a future that Paul has described earlier in Romans, Romans 8, where he says you, you, are, you are being adopted as God's children. There's a freedom of glory, a redemption of your bodies. It's coming The night is nearly over. The day is at hand. Every day brings that closer. Every day, every day, every moment. And at first read, that can just sound like a metaphor. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Um, And not mean much in the moment. So what? And and really worse, it can be like a platitude. Put it on a poster with some cats and some stars. It's awesome, right? But what does that really mean? I'm glad you laughed at that because that was my best attempt at humor. So um, (laughs) that's just going down from there. what does that mean today, that all suffering and all sorrow and all sickness, all war will cease? Like, I hear that, but it just means nothing about my day. Like, that all, all, everything sad will come untrue? So what? I got to go to work tomorrow. Um, my wife is sick. My marriage isn't going well. I mean, like, so what? We hear this and it does not help us. Um, but listen to this. See, here, listen to what Paul says. Salvation as he's describing it, is, is a day, a clear day in the future. Uh, but Paul says, listen, we have to dress and walk and be prepared for it. Verse 11, you know the time that the hours come, not will come, has come, not then, but now, not someday, but today, so be dressed. And the word there, interestingly, for time, you know the time is really important, super important. So there's a couple of Greek words, we're going to geek out for a moment, that Paul could choose, more than a couple, but a couple important ones, to talk about time. There's this word chronos, which all of us know, because a lot of us have a watch on. Um, Chronology. Chronic. It's successive, sequential time that's on your wristwatch, your Fitbit. It's the kind of time on your calendar, just plain old, ordinary, regular time. It just keeps going and going and going. But that's not the word Paul uses, interestingly. The word he uses is this word that's used frequently in the New Testament, and it's this word kairos. And kairos, literally translated, is an event or an opportunity. It's a moment. Uh, a moment when everything in your life changes. A kairos moment is when the eternal God breaks into your circumstances, your calendar, your life. It's just the right time. An event that gathers like the loose ends of your life together and makes, makes sense of them. Where, we, where time is disrupted, we see, everything becomes clear. We kind of say in Kairos moments, you know if you're in a Kairos moment, if you said this, time seemed to stand still. Sometimes during Kairos moments you feel great hope, and you're filled with belief. Other times it's anxiety and fear. As one author puts it, emotions are a great guide to a Kairos moment because your emotions are, are an indicator that, that, that even though they're negative, that, God, that, that there's something potential, that there's potential for growth, something's happening. Kairos moments can be recognized by the impact they leave on your life. So I'll give you an example of one in my life, just to help set the stage here. Uh, we're living back, our family's living back in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where I served as, you know, as a pastor before coming back to Seattle here. And I don't remember, we were a few years there. Uh, well, maybe not, because our daughter, Marn was three or four. I don't remember exactly, but I remember she was still in a stroller but could walk around, so like a lot of your kids... And uh, they have this big Christmas celebration there in the center of town, like maybe a lot of little towns. They actually bring this massive tree in from Washington State, so that was kind of cool. A huge. They went to one of our old growth forests, it looked like, and just took one and didn't even tell us. But it's a massive tree, and they have this big choir down there, and they have you know brass, and it's very East Coast. Like there's snow falling, so we're down there. Marn's in her stroller. We're singing, and then you know it's kind of like lighting the Christmas tree, and they light it. And I was probably like 1,000 people down there. Not a huge town, but big enough. And then suddenly, uh, you know, things over, and I look down, and the stroller is empty. Yeah, try that on. We're new to this town. There's about 1,000 or so or more people in a dark, snowy night. We knew nobody, nobody. And our daughter's gone. So we spent, I don't know, it felt like an hour. This is why I knew it was a Kairos moment, because it felt like time stood still. It was probably five minutes, but we spent some time looking for her, could not find her, and we were frantically, like we thought, we just lost our daughter. Um, And then, you know, this tree was enough off the ground, you know, big, huge, I'm not kidding, huge tree, and it's lit, and I see these feet under the tree. Lots of little feet just going around and around the tree. And if you have to remember, there's song, singing going on and stuff. I was like, oh, my goodness. So I went and peeked under the tree, and there she is, just dancing around the tree with these other girls. Um, but in the moment, so, you know, good outcome. In the moment, though, we were more, I, I've never really been that freaked out. And uh, as I reflected on that, it's, it's given me both a tenderness for your kids. Uh, do not like to see those things happen in our church. <laughs> and they have, but... Um, but we, we, we care about your kids so deeply. But also, a deeper trust in God. Like, I had to learn, Elizabeth had to learn practical trust in that moment. Like, what God, we need to trust you right now. Um, and that really taught me a big lesson about how to trust. Um, which is why you hear me often say, you know, palms up. <laughs> I can do nothing right now. <laughs> uh, so that's a Kairos moment. And you've had those moments in your life. An opportunity for growth. To experience and live into a deeper trust in God, belief, freedom. Live for the day, Paul says. And, uh, man, I've been reading. See, God's trying to reveal Himself in these moments. I've been reading in the Gospel of Mark recently, devotionally. And, uh, it was in Mark 8, this earlier this week. And, uh, Jesus tells His disciples, uh, he discloses, th- there, he, there, he's done this feeding of the 4,000 there. It's four or 5,000. And uh, he reveals to them that he's going to die. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. And uh, remember, he's asked them, so who do, you, who do people say that I am? And, Jesus, and Paul, Peter says, I'm, you're the Christ. And he tells them, well, here's what's going to happen. And here's, man, Jesus pulls, or uh, Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him pretty harshly. Says, you don't know. You can't say that. You can't say that, Jesus. And do you remember what Jesus says to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. (laughs) And then I love how J.B. Phillips puts this. I was reading it in the Phillips translation this week. He says, Peter, you're not looking at this situation from God's point of view, but from man's. And I felt like that was just like a moment for us, like Kairos time, the time that Paul's talking about is is, is an invitation to look at your life, your calendar. Open your calendar up. For the week, today, just look at it while you're watching the Super Bowl, I guess, and ask God, how can I see these things coming at me from your perspective, from your point of view? Am I seeing, are you seeing your life, your experiences, your challenges, your relationships, our community, our city, from God's point of view or from man's, from yours? <laughs> are you open to, to God doing something in your life, to, to interrupting you, uh, despite what seems like a dead end? Like losing our daughter would have been a, a, a dead end impossibility, catastrophe. <laughs> are you, what if I had stopped? Well, yeah, God, how do I see this from your point of view? Like, what are you doing right now? I trust you. You care about her. You care about us. Am I awake? Are you awake to the nearness of God's salvation? He's walked into the room. He's beaten a drum. Wake up. <laughs> the day is nearer now than you first believed. His promises of restoration, reconciliation, renewal, all those things. How are you seeing and processing your life as you look at your calendar? And which perspective is it from? So that's the second freedom we have, to to live for the day. Here's the last one, and then we'll come to communion. We have this freedom to surrender our whole lives to Christ. Uh, This is actually why we read the J.B. Phillips earlier, verse 14, because I love the way he puts it. Clothe yourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh, and then he says, let's be Christ's men and women from head to foot. The imagery here, he's just getting up in the morning and getting dressed. <laughs> it's unusually common for such a profound reality that the idea is that the clothes make the person. And, and, and so there's this is theological truism that, that uh, putting on Christ, by putting on Christ each day, you're going to discover that his character and his ethic and his life is becoming your life. You are becoming Christ. Uh, it reminds me that, that the, our life in Christ is not some mystical experience, that you have to get away to a cave or a monastery or on a retreat to, to understand. It's just literally waking up each day, clothing yourself like all of you did, um, thank you, um, and surrendering every area of your life to Jesus. That's what this is about. Um, in other words, discipleship, if you take that word, we, we are followers of Christ, means Following Jesus in the most practical matters, it involves and implicates every decision you make, how you use your time, your money, your words. It involves your identity, the things you stand for, the things you stand against. It involves your sexuality. It involves your calling, your families, your relationships, It involves everything. Everything in your life is involved in your discipleship as you walk step by step in the direction that Jesus leads, which, by the way, exceeds just being a moral good person. That's typically how we read these verses, these last few. Do good, be good. That's Christianity. That's probably what most of your friends who wouldn't come to a church would say about Christianity. Do good, be good, right? Don't swear, don't smoke, don't drink. Be generous, serve. And that's, but that's not what that's what the Bible says. It says that it's Christ's identity that has become your identity, his way in the world, your way, his promises for the future, your promises. Let's be Christ's, men and women, from head to foot. It involves the ways in which you live, the choices you make, your ethics. But it has a deeper source, something much deeper. Its source is giving Christ reign and rule over your whole life. It's an invitation to surrender. To surrender your whole life, head to head to foot, tip to tail, beginning to end, and then most of us right in the middle. Whether that middle feels like it's rising, you're on a good trajectory, it's flattened out, or you're headed somewhere in a weirdly downward spiral. Like... Be Christ's men and women, surrender your whole life to Christ. So here's an application for us as our students are coming back in and we come to communion. Like I said, I've been reading the Gospel of Mark. And I don't know if you've ever read the Gospels this way, but I was starting to see this phrase, not even really a phrase, but this little, these two words come up again and again, so I've been writing it down, with Jesus. It just comes up over and over and over again in Mark's Gospel. Jesus is with his disciples. His disciples are with him. Crowds are with him. The least and the lost are with him. Even these religious antagonists, the Pharisees, the skeptics, are with Jesus. Uh, and so it occurred to me this week in Mark 8, where I've been, how there's different ways to be with Jesus. If you ever read Mark 8, you'll see it. It's a story of this blind man that Jesus heals, this guy that, remember, Jesus takes some saliva and touches his eyes and he says, can you see now? <laughs> he's like, well, I see people, but they look like trees. And so Jesus does it again, and he's, he can see. Well, the stories just before that are really fascinating, because just before this man's healed, there's some Pharisees, some good church-going people, the ones who believe deeply in God, sometimes approach Jesus with profound distrust and doubtfulness. They're with him. They're with Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to get a certain outcome from Jesus. They're suspicious of Jesus' motives. They wanted to see a sign from heaven, proof that Jesus was who he said he was. In other words, listen to this. There's a way of being with Jesus that's not rooted and generated by love, that, that doesn't arise out of a place of belovedness, that, that says, hey, if I can get this, Jesus, I'm with you. But if I don't, maybe I'm not. That's one way of being with Jesus. There's also a way of being with Jesus, which I often find myself with him. The disciples who, who after that episode, come to Jesus uh, very confused because he said, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees because they've just done this. And they'd forgotten to bring some food with them. So he thought, <laughs> he's talking about food. And they're in the middle of nowhere, no money, no provisions. They're afraid. And they're, they're, they begin talking, what are we going to do? <laughs> like, we're hungry. <laughs> like, really? And Jesus doesn't have a plan. Like he's talking about all weird weird stuff. And so Jesus hears this and he says to them, have you forgotten how I fed 4,000 people with seven loaves I provided? Have you forgotten? Uh, (laughs) we, We so easily can be with Jesus and just forget. We forget that who he is, what he can do, that, he's, that God's for us, that God's with us, that God is a future, that the day is nearer now than we first believed, that God is at work presenting opportunities to us to trust in him, moments where God's revealing himself. We can, we can be with Jesus and forget that, that God is at work. That's another way. But here's the final way that I wanted to finish with. We can be with Jesus like this blind man, who if you read the story, came with nothing but desperation. He was desperate to see. He'd been blind his whole life. Desperate, for, and he knew Jesus could heal. And he's desperate for touch. He's desperate for the presence of God in his life. And I, and I thought about this, perhaps desperate to see Jesus. His, his beauty, his, what he's doing, is a glimpse of this person who's freeing people. And that's my prayer for us, that we'd come to Jesus this week, today, desperate. <laughs> Just being Christ's minimum from head to foot, desperate to see him for who he is. Okay? So let me do that. Let me pray for us, and then we'll come to the Lord's table. Will you pray with me? Father, help us to see you. We talk a lot in our gathered life about hearing you. There's a lot of words that are said, a lot of music and songs. God, we long to see. There's something unique about seeing in the Gospels. Your life seems often hidden from us, God. We trust you're within us. You're working all around us, but we just want to see you. We want sight that so many of the saints before us possessed. So God, give us that desire that drove them to follow and seek you. To see you the way they saw you. Your beauty, your grace, your love. Help us to receive God. Help us to see you, God, as Christ saw you. As his good father. They work in his life. God, free us in these moments we have with you to just simply respond through our desperation uh, with love. That's our desire, God, today, to be filled with your love. We thank you for these moments, God, of response. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.